statistics and the thinking brain cannot outweigh the emotional brain because the emotional side of our brain is what holds our values. And so we need to empathize with ourselves to align our actions with those values. Uh And the way we procure information with those values is with that thinking brain. So take those statistics, digest them emotionally, and then coax yourself into actionable behavior. Hello, everyone, and welcome back or welcome to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the human experience. Feeding Curiosity is all about conversations, and it's through these conversations that we can learn from other people, their ideas, their habits, their routines, and anything else they've picked up along the way. It is through learning from other people that we can have blueprints to live better in any form. My guest today is Nick Bugle returning to the podcast. In this episode, Nick and I go deep on what he's been exploring during the pandemic. As we all know, pandemic has put unique stress on almost all of us and Nick nonetheless. But what Nick decided to do was, in, in many ways, make the most of the situation. We spent many days and hours outside in nature walking around different parks over time that sparked an interest in him to explore what is happening within climate change and the broader environmentalism movement. What's going on at a policy level? What's going on at a technology level? How do people think about the environment? And so for Nick, it's really coming down to how do we think about ourselves as the human species and facilitate the length that our species is around. As far as I know, and most of us know, is that Earth is our home. If we're actively hindering the quality of life on this planet through our own actions, that is then in odds with us existing. For Nick, it's it's very much this selfish thing that he wants to, you know, protect this planet so that we have a future for humanity. Beyond that, this has always been one of the core elements of why I do this podcast is that Nick is not an expert in environmental science. He's not an expert in environmental policy, but he cares enough to explore and share his beliefs and opinions. And he's willing to share them in a way so that other people can maybe pick up the torch where he left off. I'm going to do my best to share as many of the links in the show notes so that you can explore for your own. I think that's the point of all of this is you don't have to be someone with a fancy degree or an acronym after your name to give a shit about something. Um, Know for a fact we didn't get everything right. There will be points that people can argue whether or not it's true. My job is to allow people to share where they got their conclusions and what they believe in an authentic way. I really feel strongly about this because I think we don't have enough of this right now. And so with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Nick Bugle. Nick Bugle, back again on the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. As always, dude, I love always talking about the things that you're exploring and and diving into because you always have a lot that you're working through in general and just unique ways that you think about the world and what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Should I just dive in? Yeah. So where did you want to start? I know we've been prefacing this conversation over two hours, but that's always fun. Um, But you've been exploring environmentalism, right? 
Yeah, so we're going to be circling around environmentalism and why it's important and how my journey through 2020 landed me there with prior, no prior influence to like really care as much as I do now mm-hmm. and my ignorance. But basically, I, I spent a lot of 2020 during my furlough period um, exploring a variety of topics, one of which was more just philosophy. And I really wanted to arrive at a non-deity-based philosophy. And the path in pursuing that kind of started with a podcast I had done a while ago with you, Joe, and Jordan, the, our little morality podcast we did, right? Yeah, that was late 2019, I think. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah, so w- with that one, there was a whole idea, like outside of religion in the cold, dark universe, what do you point to to say this is moral? Mm-hmm. And Joe gave a really good breakdown about what is moral is what serves a community or a collective best. And you can really see if it serves it best as if it's perpetuated throughout time, because that means it's a tool that is morally functional and keeps life going and thriving. And so that kind of paved the way and continued talks with Joe and a few other friends and amassing information. I realized I, my my moral compass was basically anything that perpetuates life and or consciousness is something I can get behind. In a very vague breakdown sense, I was like, okay, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-consciousness. And the reason I arrived at that especially was the realization that on our planet, the only known planet to harbor life in the universe, we have seen five major environmental setbacks, whether it be comets, high methane release, high sulfur release and planetary freezing, or a couple of other things. Five times throughout our planet's history, biological life has hit major setbacks. Mm -hmm. And each time uh, it entered a new era, life thrived further and consciousness reached a further point as well. So it seems at all points that our planet and biological life is always thriving to perpetuate itself and enrich or expand consciousness. So that altogether, that's what I arrived at, is I was a big proponent of life and or consciousness. And then I came to realize, I just was on a walk one night and had the thought is, do life and consciousness have a direct relationship? And, or is there a possibility that there's a bit of a, an inverse relationship? Because like this idea of consciousness, right? This uh, inexplicable phenomenon that we all partake in, in being conscious, can that, not can that, so consciousness is dependent on life, biological life, right? And so it's a phenomenology and an actual physical thing that we can measure. And so does this phenomenology of consciousness actually value itself and its own expansion more than the biological life that it is dependent on? And so I just started running through some thoughts and like, even like me as a vegetarian to say, Oh, I don't eat meat. I only eat plants. Like plants are alive too. Meat's alive too. Everything we consume has to be alive. And so in that I am valuing intellectual life over anything. And then there's like even the idea of abortions. Like while I still support the right to choose, to have sex willingly is to take and is to partake in an action of procreation. And then to have an abortion is to say we did this biological act for our own conscious enrichment to get joy out of having sex. But now we want to impede biological expansion. And so we're going to have an abortion. And so it just seems like consciousness. And that's what that's what kind of really tripped me up is to see that consciousness might not even value its own expansion more than the biological life it's dependent on, but its own enrichment 
more than the biological life that it is dependent on. And so that's what really led me down this path of, oh man, like fast fashion, convenience of access to plastics, of access to fossil fuels and all this. We are taking convenience so far that it's it's clear that consciousness seems to value itself over the biological life it's dependent on because we are watching our environment degrade and we are still saying convenience is more important. And so that was like a base thing. And then going further and talking to some <laughs> much smarter people than myself, I realized through talking, I think with Joe, especially not to drag him into this, he just offered some stuff. So if I'm totally wrong here, Joe is not culpable, but like the Luciferian idea and the idea that exists in a lot of mythology is this idea in the danger of over-intellectualizing in the face of risk. And in, in mythology, there's this idea of the difference between nature and wilderness. And if you go too far into the wilderness, you exit uh, civilization and there are consequences of collapse. And so like our ancestors even knew these things. And it seems as though we are taking risks in the face of unknowns as we pioneer new fields, new technologies, new everything. We're taking huge steps and we're not, it, it doesn't seem as though we are concerned enough about the consequences of those things. And now we're really seeing the fallout of that. We're seeing an earth that's heating up. We're seeing agriculture that is starting to fail us. Like the fact that we have to take, what's it called? Microbiotics and stuff for our gut health and all that is the byproduct of using pesticides that actually kill the microbiome in the soil that we use. So it never finds its way to our plate. We have dying forests all around the world. And we're seeing landmass get loss over time, which some of which is naturally occurring, like people fleeing their own country isn't always just war torn violence. It's sometimes the land is just completely depleted. And there are environmental aspects that we have caused that cause part of that. And so there's just a lot going on. And it seems we need solutions. And so the reason I think that really hit home for me was like, our our intellect slash conscious from here on out, I'll call consciousness intellect. Our intellect is the byproduct of speciation, right? And so over time, we went from Luca, a little electrified, heated up gas bubble in the ocean, all the way down through procreation and speciation over millions of years, we have arrived at human beings. And because we have always been resource dependent creatures, all biological life is resource dependent. That means that we have had to traverse a variety of environments. And that means that we've been introduced to things that either made or broke us. And so the ones that broke didn't stick around and the ones that made it, their genes got carried on. And that's how we just kept mutating throughout time. And so as we inevitably traversed a variety of environments, intellect came to be. So we owe our intellect, the very thing that allows me to even have this conversation and to think about this stuff and enrich itself we owe our intellect to the environment itself. Mm -hmm. So the environment that has made our brains possible through speciation is now the very thing that we are like shifting to make ourselves impossible. Like we are impeding our own longevity with our actions. And right. it's not to, I'm not 
interested in guilt tripping anybody, right? Like it's <laughs> inevitable that we would use combustion first. And we've discovered fire, I believe, through lightning strikes. And then we started cooking food and had right. higher calories to use our brains for bigger stuff. Like combustion energy was the way we were inevit inevitably going to go. There's no narrative function in history where we discover wind energy first. <laughs> somehow implement that to, to into electricity. So combustion energy wasn't it was inevitable but to me it feels if you were in prison and they were feeding you this diet of absolute crap gruel and it sustained you while you were in prison you were still alive and then you got out and someone's hey your health isn't that good you should probably eat a salad and you're like nah screw that i've got this gruel and you just keep <laughs> eating the gruel that is actually not good for you and you have a much shorter life because you got addicted to gruel in prison and that's what it feels like like we arrived at our ability to make these advances into new forms of energy because of combustion. Our access to energy through combustion got us there. But now we get to take a salad and we're sitting there saying, no, I want the gruel. And I, to me, it seems like this, we're comfortable with a certain way. It's the way that things have always been done, right? Up until the part that industrialization shows up realistically, the amount of energy we use was really negligible, right? Like mm -hmm. up until that point, you basically had candles and maybe some oil lamps like kerosene lamps or something like that. And it's not until electricity and then automobiles really show up on the scene that this whole pollution slash just industrialization of the world really occurs. Mm -hmm. and, and so up until that point, really, you don't have to think about how much you're damaging the environment. And I think it goes to another step further in the sense that when something like an automobile is only accessible to a small fraction of the entire population, I don't know how big the population was when the Model T was around, but I would assume a number around like 5% of all Americans at that time, which is even maybe 2% of the total population, totally guessing on these numbers, but this is just guesstimation on, on how to think about it. The amount of pollution that those people would be putting out is nothing compared to 2021 because we have mm -hmm. so many more people where I don't even know how many people have automobiles. I'll, I'll make sure to find it on the, for the show notes, but the percentage of all automobiles in the world is thousand times more than it was back then. And even nowadays we have multiple cars per household where it wasn't mm -hmm. even until probably the late 1900s that more, more than one car was owned by the average American. Yeah. So it's these to me, it's the factors of scale that really drive this stuff. That's the main driver here, I think, where as things multiply and become more and more exponential, that we have to start looking at ways to mitigate the losses and the, I'm trying to think of the word. It's really losses and, and byproducts. There we go. Probably byproducts mm -hmm. is probably the best word. Yeah. Yeah, man. And that's the very thing. And I think that even speaks to it with an increase in population and an increase in accessibility, we have seen an increase in carbon in the atmosphere, and we have seen an increase with that carbon in heat. And so I think there's value in some of the, you should always be skeptical of everything, right? That's, it's not a bad thing. I think there's value in the idea of people bringing up the point that like earth has always heated and cool, and now we're just in a heating and cooling phase. But at the same time, the, the charts, if you look back over time, the trend has changed during in correlation with our introduction of these technologies and the industrialization of the world, 
the trend line has changed and it is increasing with no sign of going back down. And that increase is in direct correlation with carbon. And that carbon is in direct correlation with our behavior through fracking, through fossil fuel usage, and through coal. And like, it's not even just burning these fuels, it's how we acquire them. It's how we now do agriculture, right? Mm -hmm. When we used to do, we should, like the fact that we haven't implemented no-till agriculture yet is a bit nuts because it's releasing so much carbon into the atmosphere. What is no-till? Can you explain? So, so no-till is basically just like the like farmers back in the day or agriculturists. I don't know how far back in history we want to go, but like throughout time, didn't have the technology to just drive a huge vehicle with a rake on the back of it, scraping up uh, soil at 30 miles an hour or whatever. And so that's just going to release stuff as dust. And that dust has particles that will be released in the atmosphere. Back in the day, farmers just had their own little rake or an ox that they would go through the mud at five miles an hour with or slower. And it was just one row at a time and it took time. And that's way less efficient. And we have a much larger population now, but there are means to mitigate that now that we don't have to use enormous rakes at high speeds while we rake up soil into dust that gets released into the atmosphere, also increasing our carbon uh, content. And so, and even there, right? So with some of that skepticism, how does carbon heat our atmosphere? There's, I, I can't remember, it's ozone. I think even the the water that is in our atmosphere can harbor heat. Mm-hmm. But I think there's stable levels of those things that when they harbor heat, it's not that crazy. But the over-release of carbon and our, our carbon dioxide in our atmosphere has been something that we haven't done a good job controlling. And so carbon and methane are two things that add to the bombardment of heat before it leaves our atmosphere. And so like the whole science behind that is just, I believe with these molecules, some of them, I believe it's just regular old oxygen and nitrogen do not have super polarized setups. And so there's no flux for heat to bounce in and out of them or them to take on excess energy. So when the sunlight hits them, it goes through, leaves. And that would actually be really bad if our environment was just all oxygen and nitrogen because we wouldn't maintain any heat and we wouldn't be able to live. See, then you have your hydrogen, your ozone and stuff that has polarized molecules. And so those are able to accept a little bit of an excited stage before they re-release that heat. And then maybe that heat hits something else. And so it sticks in two to three times longer in our atmosphere. So we're able to harbor heat. Mm -hmm. And the, I think, 480 trillion tons or something of sunlight, of joules of sunlight that we get a day come helps us harbor all that heat and we're able to stabilize. But when you introduce all this carbon um, dioxide and methane into the atmosphere, there's way more bombardment before that heat gets to leave. And we start to heat up a lot more than is suitable for us. And so if we have the tools to mitigate that, why wouldn't we before we overheat? Again, we're making ourselves impossible. I'm just going to do, I'm just doing some fact checking while you're talking here. So the first thing you mentioned, the mixture of gases in the earth's atmosphere. So what you're saying is not to be contrary or to, bring up any facts that are not really already known. It's that Mm -hmm. what you're explaining is the greenhouse effect. And so the greenhouse effect or greenhouse gases that are part of this effect is that it keeps the earth at a constant temperature. And when Mm -hmm. the ratio of these gases is not at the right mixture, then the greenhouse effect becomes out of whack and therefore can cause either runaway cooling, then the things die or things get too hot. And I found an article from NASA here and it's, Normally, the Earth 
is has naturally a rising greenhouse effect, which keeps the planet at a friendly 15 degrees Celsius or 59 degrees Fahrenheit on average. So that's just looking at the entire planet and saying that's the average temperature across the entire planet. And so it says, in, but in the last century or so, humans have been interfering with the energy balance of the planet, mainly through the burning of fossil fuels that gives off additional carbon dioxide into the air. The level of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere has been rising consistently for decades and traps extra heat near the surface, causing temperatures to rise. So there's that one. And then I went to look up and see if I could find anything on the solar side of things, but I can't. There's There was a Wikipedia source that said there's some insane amount of solar radiation that hits the planet or is generated by the sun, and we're not using it very well, <laughs> for one thing. But I don't know. Let's see. I think I know I learned this recently, but of course it was one source and I didn't fact check it, but it was like some documentary, I think. And they were saying on so it was like a little doc thing on solar energy. And they were saying, I think it's maybe I got, 480 billion tons, 480, 480 billion joules of solar energy hit the earth. Close. So the, there's a business insider article I just found. So it's, this is the incredible fact that we should get psyched about, about solar power. So that mm -hmm. each hour for each hour, 430 quintillion joules of energy from the sun hits the earth. Yeah. <laughs> so in comparison, the total energy that all humans use in a year. 410. 410 quintillion joules. Yeah, so you can do that one. And then for context, the average American home uses 39 billion joules of electricity, and that was in 2013. So assume yeah. that's probably gone up by a couple of percentage points. Yeah. And so I think the clincher quote that you can pull out of that is that in one whole year, we fail to use an hour's worth of solar energy. Yeah, right. It's absolutely insane because if my thinking is that if we can offload the pressure just by capturing the, the Earth's sunlight in a more effective way, then that would eliminate much of the byproduct that go into the feedback loop that is causing many of the issues with the greenhouse effect, right? So why do we want to do this? <laughs> yeah, it's projected like even right now, I think to me in my ignorance with how little I've learned across this topic, to me, it seems like some of the most relevant things that we could be paying attention to are water shortages just for the sake of longevity of humans in general. I'm not sure how that actually has uh, an environmental impact outside of actually sustaining populations, but also agriculture, which is a similar thing. But again, as I've mentioned, agriculture is also having global environmental heating impacts as well. But it's projected that in 60 years, we will finally hit our last, our last uh, crop turn. And that'll be it, right? That'll be our last year of actually being able to plant stuff because we will have depleted the soil so much and shifted our environment so much that we can no longer actually use it to grow food to sustain ourselves. And that's not like everything's perfect for the next 60 years and then, oh, time's up. Now we got to find out a new solution. That's like a degradation over the next few decades into something bad. And while I was like wrapping my head around that, I happened to, my boss happened to hand me off a book called One Second After about like an EMP strike, which isn't like the same deal at all, but it does talk about what happens when society collapses, right? All the things we depend on go away. And we're animals. We exist in a vacuum of comfort, but we are animals that are run not only by a frontal lobe, but by hormones and other things and our subconscious and all that. And so we are prone to want to survive. And so if people right now are like killing each other over consumer goods that they hold high value, imagine water 
imagine food imagine the hoarding that will occur like it's already posited mm -hmm. that i don't know how long but not that far off not centuries for sure we're going to have in the u.s water shortages and the first thing there is okay how are our i'm in illinois i'm pretty happy about that because i'm right next to the great lakes but Illinois has sketchy politicians and they're probably going to sell off our water to every other state who's got the highest bid. And they'll just say, <laughs> sorry, Illinoisans. And these are like really big issues. And it's just like a big concern. Again, we're neglecting the environment that has made us possible and we're making ourselves impossible. And the cool thing is, if you want to look at it from a biological point, if humans go away or only a few stragglers lay out, by the rule we've seen five other times again, the Holocene era will not be the end of life and a new form of life will thrive. But this is the only era to house humans. And so I'm asking the human race to be selfish and see to it that we can extend <laughs> this Holocene era as long as possible and make ourselves possible for as much time. And it, it feels like we had already touched base on it. So we can use this to segue into how we can make change, but I think a big way that we can make changes in these practices is asking organizations to align with values in environmentalism, ecological and environmental values. And so we're starting to see that trend shift already with the fact that like Coors Light is saying buy a 30 rack or whatever and save a oh, river. Yeah. For that's the, that's the, huge. The seltzer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's massive. That that says something about consumer values right now, and that's showing power. And so something to visit there is like in the United States here, we exist in a republic and our only form of exercising democracy is like really just the voting, right? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to actually passing through bills, we have people in charge that are supposed to know more than us so that they can tell us the best bet. We elect people whose job it is to know more than us because we have to spend our days doing other stuff, contributing to the economy. Mm -hmm. And so we don't really want uh, an absolute democracy because not everybody knows everything and that'd be crazy. And so what we're yeah. seeing with cancel culture is absolute democracy. We're seeing people that don't maybe have the full story. And I'm not here to debate whether or not cancel culture is good or bad right now, but just seeing the power that is there with absolute democracy and the fact that it is making change. People are saying, we hate this. They're posting like crazy about it. And then something changes. Right. Why does that change? It changes more than likely because the company that canceled whatever you wanted them to values your consumer votes. They're saying, whatever you want us to cancel, we know that we will suffer economically if we don't cancel it. Right. So we want to align with what our consumers value. And so we are going to cancel this. Whether or not the story is true or right or whatever, and that's happening. And so we, I said it's not the point of your example here. Yeah, no. So, so we do have power in our absolute democracy there in consumer values. And so again looking at the Coors Light example, right? Like the fact that a company of that size is saying save a river by our product and stuff. That's showing a shift in values. And so we do have that value. We do have power as consumers to ask companies that have great scale impact to do more and do better. And I know not everybody can align their economic purchases to do that. But if you have the time, if you have the patience, and if you value these things, AKA the human race, take that time and reassess what the companies you are purchasing from are actually doing and where their values lie, what they're doing. And so a, a big movement that's happening right now 
or I, I don't I can't really say that, but I, that I've noticed is this, what is it, carbon credit systems. And the, the first notice I had, and I think the introduction of it was in the automotive industry. And I think there's a, a good argument with some people that are against it. The idea is that the whole concept of the carbon credit system is, let's say you, Eric, owned a business and I owned a business. And the government said each of us needed to have five carbon credits by the end of the year in terms of our carbon efficiency of not polluting the atmosphere. And so at the end of the year, I had 10 carbon credits and you had three carbon credits. Now you can go on operating unless you found two more carbon credits to hit your, hit your five credit minimum. And so you would be able to come to me and say, hey, I need to buy two credits from you. And now money has been exchanged without the government handling it, I believe, so that you may continue operating. And now mm -hmm. I have gotten more money for being a company that either sequesters carbon or has more carbon efficient production. And so the, the argument against that is saying, if you're making another company that is inefficient, pay money that they could be utilizing to better their practices instead to a company that already has it figured out, then you're not doing a great job. But the flip side is if you weren't doing anything, they wouldn't be incentivized through that taxation to want to change at all. So there's a, a, a double-edged sword there, and I see both sides for sure. But what is happening now is a shift in companies seemingly wanting to become carbon neutral. And yes. again, what can we, we have consumer power to start aligning with companies that do that purchase from companies that are interested in doing that. And so what I had heard from uh, this podcast, Your Forest Podcast, the host, Matthew Kristoff, had a guest on that was talking about some stats. And I believe it's like the average 100-person office produces about five tons of carbon a year. And that's including office operations, keeping the lights on, all the way from like people commuting as well. And so what that company can do is find somewhere that is carbon neutral or carbon negative and purchase credits from them and say, okay, we've endorsed this carbon sequestration or this energy efficient program. And now we've gone carbon neutral by giving them money to make them more efficient and invest further in sequestering carbon or whatever. Yeah. And you can do that with uh, a solar farm. You can do that with a wind farm. You can do that now recently with forests, privately owned forests. They mm -hmm. finally were able to, through drone surveillance and uh, predictive AI, they're at a 95% accuracy, able to find out how much carbon will be sequestered in a forest throughout a year. And so they can say, okay, you're gonna sequester X amount of carbon this year. We can say that you're worth three carbon credits, and then they can go sell one of those carbon credits to a company that wants to be carbon neutral. And so uh, basically you can, have a company that isn't necessarily environmentally friendly in their own practice and what they do. They don't have any environmental cause at all, but they use some of their profits to then invest in carbon neutral or carbon sequestration activities. And so now they are on the right kind of side of this. And again, it's just through our purchasing power to see companies that see to it that we start buying, if we can, from companies that start exercising these things and aligning our values so that companies have to keep up. Because again, through this absolute democracy, it's been proven that we do have that purchasing power. And with that, there is the risk of companies greenwashing. And that same expert who had gotten on the stats and stuff had said with a potential rise in not cryptocurrency, but what is cryptocurrency based on? Cryptography. Blockchain. Blockchain, there you go, yeah. So blockchain, with its transparency through interactions, might be a way that we can prevent greenwashing through companies mm. and say, like, when this company says 
that we're actually sequestering carbon or purchasing carbon credits, they're actually doing it and not just saying, hey, we're carbon neutral and touting some narrative that isn't right. true. You can actually so you can actually mm-hmm. go to climateneutral.org and get certified there. So Climate Neutral is a organization that will then they'll work with your company or and they have a whole list of different brands from many different sectors on their website that they have certified brands. So brands that they've actually certified and they have committed brands that are committing to this, but may not be certified yet. So you can look on here and there's a pretty lengthy list. And I think a lot of the more modern companies that aren't really in department stores, let's see, let me just click the brands here and see if there's anyone that hits off the top of my head, like avocado mattress. I've seen ads for those. A lot of the out all birds. I've heard of them. These are not endorsements by the way. I'm just picking names that I recognize out of the list, but yeah, I'll leave a link uh, in the show notes for all the things that you've mentioned here. And a lot of the newer brands, if you, what you can do is you can look usually under the about us. They may, if they support this type of stuff, they may have an environmental or some sort of environmental tab explaining what they do. Cause one of the companies that I follow and use a lot of their stuff, like the tripod I'm using right now is peak designs. And so they're a camera and bag accessory manufacturer So they make tripods and backpacks and things like that. And most of their stuff is all built around this idea of sustainability and stuff. So that's how Mm -hmm. I found a lot of this different information. You can see where they get their stuff. And then they usually have links to theirs. Like uh, Peak Designs is an OIA, Outdoor Industry Association member. So it's a OIA Climate Action Corps. They also are based on climate-based targets set by greenhouse uh, gas reduction in the climate science, and they want to be carbon neutral and then carbon negative, actually. So mm-hmm. they want to work to be a, even below. Oh, and then the other one, I don't remember if you mentioned this one, Nick, but 1% for the planet. I've seen that one be pretty common nowadays, too, for a lot of the bigger companies. Yeah. <clears throat> Dope. I'll have a link in the show notes so people can explore their leisure. Yeah. Continue. So still, I think still, I almost forgot with the idea of affecting things economically, there's also the influence of the legal system and like mm-hmm. passing bills or practices that maybe make it a little more environmentally friendly out there for some companies and stuff. And I posted one thing from, I can't remember, his name's Jeremy something. He wrote a great book on sustainability that I'm waiting for in the mail. But he mentions that the full cost of a good is not incorporated in when you purchase a product, right? So there are long-term consequences to some of the practices that are in action today. And when you buy a good, you're not paying for the fallout of whatever their ill gotten gains are and so if they like i one of the documentaries one of the documentaries you had sent me eric i can't recall what the name of it was that was uh, the patagonia one public lands i believe yeah i think so so it's public trust feature film the fight for mm-hmm. america's public lands from patagonia right. you can find it on youtube again there will be a link <laughs> yeah so with this in capitalism there is the argument that Industry should not be regulated by the governments and the government is incompetent. I don't know that I fully disagree with the second thing on a lot of fronts, but in terms of industry regulation, it it just, 
doesn't hold up that way. Again, there are long-term consequences, or they're, they're not, maybe not even long-term. And that documentary does a really good job of saying when things go unregulated, the consequences fall on the taxpayer. And there are more than often consequences because if a company shows up and is like, hey, we're just going to drain the resource from this land mm-hmm. and we have no reason to care and we're just going to leave. They are not indebted to anyone when things fall apart afterwards, when they did a terrible job cleaning up, when they pollute a water source, when they kill an entire ecosystem that was part of a a local economy. And again, it's the the big thing is, I, I think I'm quoting Robert Reich here. It's not if you want the government involved, it's when you want them involved. You want them involved in the beginning and asking them, asking companies to be culpable for the consequences of their actions while they profit off the environment that they perverse? Or do you want taxpayer money to clean up the consequences of their action? For me, I think I know my own answer. <laughs> I, think, um, I think it has two different, like there's two different ways of looking at this, right? Like the, a company sees things, sees resources as a short-term gain. Mm-hmm. but has long-term consequences. And when given the opportunity, it will not shoulder that burden if if the system allows it for it to shirk that responsibility. And that's not to say that some companies will take on that responsibility given some sort of culture. But to me, one of the stories that really struck home from that documentary was the mining uh, town that I believe was in Minnesota. And... They come in, it's a tiny little mining town, and they say, hey, we're going to put up this mine. It's going to give people a whole bunch of jobs. They do what they do, and until that resource is depleted, all of a sudden that mine is basically left over a weekend or whatever. It's just completely abandoned, and whatever damage is done to the environment is completely left to the local town. And in the long run, the local town is left worse for wear because... Now, all those jobs that were once there are gone. So half the people or whatever it is, it's just not a sustainable economy anymore. And now mm-hmm. all that economy is gone and people have to figure out a new place to not only live, but there's all the damage. And it gets even worse because when you look in, at least in that example, the owner of that particular mine was a mining conglomerate that was, I believe, in South America. And so it, it, the picture looks even worse, right? Because then you have yeah. external influences coming into America, damaging the environment, taking the resources, and then leaving. It just sounds horrible because it's, oh, you just damaged the environment. And who like how can you blame people for that? But people make mm-hmm. it sound like a victimless, victimless crime. Say uh, computer hacking is a victimless crime. Some people think of it that way. Or at mm-hmm. least it's popularized that way, but it's not that. Is, is it? Is it undermines public trust? And mm-hmm. the same thing goes with the environment. Is when you take a resource, harm the environment, and then leave it for the people that actually live there to shoulder that burden of putting that land back into some sort of usable place. At the very least, to do a mining thing, you're destroying habitat. It's one of those things to me that it frustrates me in the sense that. We would need to be we need to be more responsible stewards for those that will come after. Because yeah. now it's on who knows how long it will take. My guess would be probably five to ten years for that environment to return to normal if they started mobilizing something early on to at least allow wildlife or something to return to the land. And so to me it's just we need to think of long term strategies so that if we do take resources, we we have to at least make it viable for something. And so the corporate 
capitalist argument there is that these are just externalities to be shrugged to the side and the government should not have a role in decisions of how corporations operate, right? Mm-hmm. But the government will have a role inevitably, whether it's cleaning up your mess or regulating you into not even making a mess in the first place. And so again, like that same guy had mentioned, the author, Jeremy something, mm-hmm. he he mentions that GDP is not like, it's a qualitative metric or it's a quantitative metric. It's not a qualitative metric. And so GDP is strictly concerned about the quantity of money in the economy, but not the yeah. quality of the people living in it. And so one of the biggest failures there is that an oil spell is great for a GDP because there has to be cleanup crews. There's long-term stuff. There's a lot of people employed to clean up an oil spill. And so an oil spill looks great on paper. It's qualitatively awful. GDP wise, quantitatively. Oh yeah. Bring it on. That's interesting. And so (laughs) I think, I think that's like a quote from somebody, right? I think like the shift in GDP uh, acting as the metric for uh, livelihood is a huge failure. And it, I couldn't agree more. That's re- that's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that, but I guess it makes sense at least in the short term. And it, it's. Well, even, so even the father of, I believe gross domestic product, that metric, when, it, when he brought it to light, he said, this should not be used as like an all encompassing metric for advancement. And there are other metrics that we do have that are not GDP that show that American society has stagnated in a lot of ways in a qualitative manner. And I think that's the thing to note here, right? Like some things you can measure aren't actually the things that tell you whether or not you're on the right track, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, like GDP is good to just see health of an economy or something like that, but it's not the end all be all of what or the only way to encompass i guess progress maybe is the right word there the and we got we have to start looking beyond some of these metrics because even then i'm not sure exactly when gdp was created but it was probably in the 50s if not a little earlier than that so it's definitely dated at this point right there's a lot mm-hmm. more we can measure our societies on or countries and on whether or not they're moving in a positive direction. Do you want to get into some of the cool, good stuff that's happening in the world? Let's do it. Some of the cool advancements. One of the coolest things I think right now, first off, again, I'll just revisit. I I think two of the more pressing things that we could be concerned about is shifts in agricultural and water practices. And a lot of countries are already doing really cool stuff. I think the U.S. is now in alignment to join the Paris Accords, which is great. And that's no-till that's asking for the restoration of a microbiome in the soil instead of using a lot of fertilizers that actually kill the microbiome that doesn't offer a good plant exchange and doesn't enrich our own health in terms of water usage. I think a lot of companies are starting to be better about recycling water or just finding new ways to not use water. Some societies like water use, water shortages is not a new thing. It's been happening, I think, in Africa for a while. I, I still can't remember off the top of my head. There's a great documentary uh, on water on Netflix. And I know in Africa, they're using one, they're using one uh, technology where they use biomimicry for, I guess, a, a beetle kind of gathers, I think it electrifies its buttocks and it gathers <laughs> water droplets on its butt. And so they're using that to pull water molecules out of the air and then condense it and distill it into water for people to drink, which is, I don't know how efficient that one is because I've read recently that like 
in a square mile or something of fog, it's almost less than a gallon of water that you're actually seeing. It's dispersed down to that like almost film thickness, which sounds crazy. But then you think about what we had talked about with gold, right? That you can flatten like a, a matchbox <laughs> size piece of gold into a tennis court. Maybe it's not that crazy, but what they're also doing somewhere in Europe, I want to say Norway, is they're using like enzymes that our body uses to allow things in and out of our cellular walls. They're using that, like just a bunch of them in a grid to actually filter water. And I don't know, I think that's desalination that they're doing that with. So there's been some cool advancements. I don't know. I know we also recently, there was that really cool kid that found a good way to recycle styrofoam into activated carbon. So it would use as like a filter. So there's some cool stuff going on there. And it's not like we're completely in the dark, right? And even with agriculture, there's been some big changes, especially I know in the US through the NCRS, they have a lot of great usages and informing people between composting down to actual agricultural practices that help not only not release carbon through that tilling process and other things, but actually when you introduce an efficient like carbon economy into the soil again, you're sequestering a ton of carbon because there's lots of stuff in the ground that needs that carbon. And then it just dies there and is deep down in the soil because roots go deep. And so that's just really cool. I think those are really two very big pressing things in terms of just human sustainability in general, like sustenance. But in terms of our environment, to get back on that track, one really cool thing that I'm happy about is two really cool things are biochar and wood plastics. And like plastics, it was a great discovery when it was, again, same thing with combustion. It, it was something that we needed and now half the stuff we use, like the phone I'm talking to you from is made of mostly plastics. And so when we discovered making oil into, I think, carbon polymers and stuff, that was really cool. And it allowed us to get where we're at technologically. But now we're at a place where we can start creating plastics out of other things and we can start making more like functional plastics too. And so I was really surprised that they were able to take, I think, the lignin in trees and they've been breaking trees down to the cellulose hem cellulose and uh, lignin for a while now and i think the cellulose was the thing being used most for like fiberboard and stuff and then there was the process of swapping out the glue that they would make fiberboard with 20 percent of it a couple years ago could be swapped out so that carbon polymer oil a petroleum-based glue that you would use to glue a wood fiber together to make fiberboard. Yeah. 20% of that could have been subbed out for the uh, repurposed lignin. And they're working towards trying to basically repurpose lignin so that you no longer need that petroleum so that you can take apart a tree and then use your cellulose chips and then have that lignin-based glue glue it all together. And you just made fiberboard strictly from a tree alone. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have to have an external process to do, but that would be pretty cool. And now we've come so far as to figure out, I guess they've known for a while, but making it economically efficient has been a real big difficulty. But now they're able actually to make, I believe, polymers from the lignin and trees and start making uh, tree-based plastics. And that's a really cool advancement. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Tesla is starting to implement that. And when I was listening to the podcast on that Your Forest podcast with the gentleman talking about it, he the whole time he was talking about car or tree-based plastics, I was like, oh yeah, water bottles made of trees and all that. But they're talking about making plane wings and windowsills and wow. like really big stuff. They're just right? going like, all, so, all in. <laughs> yeah. Proving- well, unlike the petroleum polymers, the lignin-based polymers are actually like, they, they can play around because trees are sturdy as heck, right? Like they are big creatures that stick around <laughs> and go through tons of different environments. Right. So they are 
they're more sustainable in a variety of temperatures, better than uh, petroleum-based plastics. They're more sturdy. I think they can let you can actually engineer them to either degrade faster or last longer, depending on what the product is. So if it's a bottle, you might want it to degrade within a year. So you can engineer it to do that with the polymer you make. Or so basically maybe just don't take it too far into one route so that uh, microorganisms can still recognize it and break it down. Or if you don't want it to break down, like you don't want your plane wing to fall off mid-flight, you can turn it into something that's way more, has a lot more longevity, right? Mm-hmm. So I think wood-based plastics are pretty darn cool. Yeah, it's neat. Um, and then there's also, I guess there's CNC, there's crystallized nanocellulose, which is like Whoa. adding cellulose <laughs> crystals together or something, and just you can make anything from it. They're starting to 3D print that, I think. I got a little lost on that one. But there's just really cool wood technologies. And what's really cool about that is either you're keeping carbon that was, so trees are 50% carbon. They're awesome sequestration machines. And so you're either keeping that carbon in into some, like the wallpaper in this room is carbon that never got released into the atmosphere. And so when you're making products of trees, that's not trees that fall in the forest and become dried out and then become fuel for a forest fire. And then all that carbon gets re-released into the atmosphere, which at the very least forest fires are actually like great for that forest in a way that it's returning so much to the soil and forests always return. They are the most sustainable thing we have and what is why we should be in, investing in forest-based uh, products, right? Because even hemp, as great of a product as it is, still requires so much effort on the human side where forests just keep going. No matter what we do, forests will be there. They will keep on keeping on and growing themselves and returning. I lost myself there got really excited about trees but but so yeah no instead of becoming a fallen tree that gets eaten down and re either gets dried out and burned or eaten and reintroduced to the atmosphere which still isn't even all that bad because that's carbon that was at least already in the atmosphere that is being re-released we didn't necessarily ever raise the net carbon by doing that but when we do this with products we're sequestering carbon and it's not getting re-released right do you think and this is doing- like a volume problem because for burning fossil fuels you're releasing carbon that has been fossilized for x million of years so you're releasing more there and so that it's like the net addition you're like net positive mm-hmm. but it's like net positive by a huge factor well so what we're doing though again when you're tilling soil super hard it would either it's soil it's carbon that would be sequestered in the ground right, by yeah. a bunch of like microorganisms and when you go into the earth and you pull out petroleum and you pull out right. coal that's carbon that would have never been in our atmosphere right. and now we're like well whoa, maybe if we light it on fire nothing will happen but good things have happened great things have happened we've had awesome access to energy but again now we have the option to eat a salad and it turns out that gruel is killing our health and we're pulling carbon that was never going to be in the atmosphere and we're introducing it and we're seeing the consequences that we didn't see fit and now we have the information to act ethically and i think we should do and so again it's about that net carbon in our atmosphere do we want to pull up carbon that should have never been in the atmosphere or would have never been without our intervention or do we want to at least work in the net carbon and things that carbon that's been sequestered do we want to turn it into products that again don't get released into the atmosphere right Mm -hmm. the thing is though with these tree plastics to my knowledge i think the acquisition process is way more expensive than is considerably more expensive than the acquisition of petroleum, which in general, I'm sure this petroleum supply chain is already just really efficient and it's hard to compete with. But I guess in general, the acquisition of these trees and trying to break them down is that is is not as economically efficient. But when you look at actually turning them into polymers, I guess the trees are way more economically efficient 
to turn into polymers than it is to turn petroleum into polymers. So mm. I, I don't know if those equal each other out, but at least there is some good force. And again, it's better for us. It's right. not, as you mentioned, kicking the can. We are adding to our longevity with these practices and we're giving ourselves better air quality. We're giving ourselves a better planet. And it's just, it's cool. And then there's, is there anything you wanted to add on that before yeah. I hop onto biochar? I, yeah, I was going to say that to drive the point home, this could be more of a conclusionary thing, but what it, what it seems like to me is what we have to be more mindful of is the delta T, the rate of change, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, to use a fuel source analogy, right? It's like acceleration in your car. By holding down the gas pedal, your car is going to accelerate at a faster rate than if you lightly press the gas pedal. And burning fossil fuels as the pace of the world increases, right? Everyone has access to cars. Everyone is searching for convenience. That means the engine that is the world accelerates exponentially, which will be either accelerating that rate of change of burn, like that burn rate. Or Mm -hmm. so the idea is that by becoming aware of technologies like these, and then we'll move on to biochar in a second is so that we can legitimately pump the brakes on that rate of change is, is, does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Another thing though, too, that you just reminded me. So with these changes and the usage of fossil fuels, I think one of the biggest things that I regret having not mentioned so far is a tapered approach. And so I think the reason I I drive the whole consumer perspective home is because that will incentivize companies to shift their own behavior. Whereas if you just pass a law that's like, hey, guess what? No more fossil fuels. That's not a tapered approach and things will collapse, right? Like very quickly. I think too- You can't just pivot like that. Like in just regulating companies, the companies will do bare minimum to in quotes Mm -hmm. pass whatever Mm -hmm. regulation is in place. Yeah. Again, if you go the whole nut up or shut up route though, right? Like I think not to talk smack, but to my knowledge, California just dove headfirst into yeah, uh, their regulations there renewable energy. Yeah. They went, they drove headfirst into renewable energy and now they have to have rolling blackouts. And if that's the first example for diving headfirst, what other state is going to want to do that? And that's to set a good example is key. And so as the first ones to enter that experiment in the U S I believe, that's it's not a great example. And that's why I really wish for a, a tapered approach over time. As much as it would be awesome for us to just solve this all right. overnight. Just flip the switch now and go full renewable tomorrow. Just pfft. Yeah, we can't do that. We right. have such a sensitive ecosystem and economy, and we are well, all so codependent in so, so many ways. Complex. Like, it's not, There's so many moving yeah. parts in this thing. And mm-hmm. I, I personally, like as an engineer, I've done so much research in my own, just trying to understand renewable technology and... As much as I would love to say and come on here and be like, we've done the numbers and it looks like if we just pick this one technology and just adopted it right now today, we would be able to <laughs> supplement our energy needs. And unfortunately, that's just not the case because mm-hmm. not every environment or location or whatever is suitable to every kind of or to specific kinds of renewable tech, right? Like you're just taking solar and wind, which most people know about. Those two, they they work in very specific environments, and one mm-hmm. or the other doesn't really doesn't really function in 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 every environment. And not to mention, there's upkeep associated with those technologies as well. Even to say that there's no such thing as a lossless system, yeah. you know. So even if you could transition a, a vast majority of power generation, say 
to to offset carbon emission, then that would still cause issues down the road because then you'd have to still create replacement parts for the solar system or for the wind turbines. And Mm -hmm. who's to say how those are being manufactured? Because every step along the chain has emissions associated with it. So it's, it's such a multivariate problem that just to say, let's fix it is undercutting it a little bit because of just how complex it is. Yeah. That's what I like really a lot too about Tesla is they're working to change up supply chain, right? They're really, they're, they're really taking the reins and becoming so much more, not only economically efficient, but environmentally, right? Like they're just, I think they're killing the game with all the stuff they're pioneering. I I had this thought recently and I don't know if I brought it up to you, but it was like, if you wanted to, to make something, so say I was trying to pitch electric cars. And so the first question was be, can you make electric cars something that someone would want? Can you make it cool? Mm -hmm. Done with Tesla. He did it. He figured it out. He made an electric car cool. Fine. The next question is, can you manufacture a battery big enough so that it would be viable and mass producible? They seem to have done it. They're building multiple gigafactories, right? Mm -hmm. Then the next question, though, is if you are trying to change how people fuel their vehicles to from a gasoline-based, petroleum-based system to an electrical-based system, all you've done now is taken the load from a the natural the gas part of it and transitioned it to your electrical grid mm-hmm. so yeah. now all you've yeah. done is moved your problem from a to b yeah that's a really big thing right yeah and so now you just moved your problem and so then elon mm-hmm. though he was smart enough to see that or his team was smart enough to see that okay we've just moved it from a to b and now we've transitioned the problem from burning something to pulling it from the grid yeah. And so then he goes, okay, let's start doing this solar and power wall thing and see if you get people on solar, then they can power a personal battery in their home that then powers their car. And so yep. then you close the loop and instead of draining more from the grid that is already mm-hmm. has its own issues, because how do you generate the electricity is yeah. one thing. And and I can put a link in, in uh, the show notes about the comparison between grid generate energy generation to coal burning generation that would be associated with your car. And Mm -hmm. uh, in the blog, I'm going to paraphrase here. I don't know if it's exactly correct, but basically depending on where you live, you can figure out how much the cost is based on electricity versus the cost of emissions for fueling your car in a normal way. And Mm -hmm. when I did the calculations for my Prius at the time, it's like the price per kilowatt or whatever is exactly the same for my Prius as it would have been for a Tesla at miles per gallon. Mm. Or at least at an, at an emissions thing. And I might be paraphrasing there. I might be slightly off now, but that was a couple of years ago. And I'll see if I can find the link on that. No, you just brought up a really good point though, too. I'm glad we walked into this, but it, it, it might start a, a war for lithium and things like that. Yes. I can't, cobalt and lithium, I think, are two of the main battery metals. Cobalt, I'm not too aware of, but lithium for sure. So lithium is in all of the super compact battery technology and it, that's a rare mm-hmm. earth metal. So with solar energy, right? You're just you're basically just exciting ionized layers of silicon and then the energy flows out and flows right back in and there's no storage. And so it's just you use it or lose it. And so it's there, it's not. And so that's the difficult thing with solar. And so then there's discussion of whether or not we need batteries to actually store that energy, which is one of the bigger solves. Whether or not that turns into a war of lithium or cobalt or whatever, 
mm-hmm. um, becomes another thing. And then we have to go mine those things. And are these Again, companies going to do that sustainably? We're back at this, the, the, yeah. the mining of rare materials, mm-hmm. right? Or, yeah, or just, yeah. I guess, highly, oh my God, high demand materials. And they're mm-hmm. not abundant either, or less abundant yeah. than, say, something like copper or nickel. And then there's just more science that goes behind making something such as a solar panel, right? Manufacturing a solar panel, at least in current times, or manufacturing a high-density battery takes a lot more engineering currently, unless we can develop new processes that make that process more efficient in general, mm-hmm. then we'll get beyond that. But currently, it's not like... To make these technologies, we still have to use old technology to yeah, run our factories. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. And I know that I guess it, there is the lesser of two evils. Do yeah. we continue fracking or do we start mining cobalt and other stuff? It's the decision to start, right? And not to be cliche, yeah. but it's officially January 1st of 2021. But it's, it's like the decision to make any change is always hardest right before mm-hmm. you make the change. Because there's no pressure to make a change because the system works well enough. And, (laughs) but the thing is, if you can do it a little bit better, might as well try to, because at the end of the day, it's better to try than not, not to have at, in my opinion, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Like it it is worth it too. And like, again, these technologies are always getting better and better and more efficient. And it depends. Some of the biggest things we're going to have to worry about is the much larger industry, like automotive and stuff like that. Like I have a a buddy in the industry who joked, but it wasn't a joke a few years ago where he was like, well, yeah, at any point we could make a car that's 40 miles to the gallon. Like the government wants, we could make a car that's 60 miles to the gallon right now, if we wanted to in the next few years. But the thing is we don't want to do that. And so to defer the government, we're going to tell them it'll take us 10 years to do this. And it's always this song and dance of like how efficient the change is going to come. But what's cool is to see the other technologies advancing at a same, if not better rate, and hopefully they're more honest. And so even with the placement of solar panels, right, the idea of appropriating, like giving the government the option to sell abandoned land to solar companies. And so there's just, you have an abandoned collection of rooftops that you stick solar panels all over, and that's a solar farm right there. And you have floating, or you have solar panels that are off the ground, and they're aware that I think most ground emits like, or reflects like 40% of solar energy or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they're starting to double side solar panels and they're just getting better about yeah there's just a lot of like little cool advancements i don't know a lot about wind energy but it's just like it's cool to see these things haven't stagnated at all they're getting better every time and they're becoming more competitive and that's really cool to see yeah but yeah i know that there is like a a really important thing there is uh, oh i have an electric car now but i'm still using fossil fuels to (laughs) to charge it (laughs) no it's it's a net process and so we have to find the best most efficient and tapered way and ethical way to do all this but we do need to do it or we're not around and again i want us to be selfish and care about the holocene era that houses humans right (laughs) this is a selfish thing very much i would like to see humans have as much longevity as possible and not undercut ourselves out of convenience for no other reason but to let other people see the outdoors as i've seen it in during this time of the pandemic there's been so many times that i've been just outside and enjoy being in the sun or whatever that at the very least, right, you could at least have mm-hmm. an appreciation and not be selfish in a way that allows other people to uh, experience it, too. Yeah, absolutely, man. I don't think amongst the people that know me, especially the people that have me on Snapchat, it is no surprise that I've spent an average of two to three hours a day of preserve <laughs> pretty much all of 2020. 
And actually, ironically, my whole shift into caring a lot about environmentalism has nothing to do with that. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It was just, again, my per, this whole shift is really the byproduct of that non-deity-based metric, right? They, they're two... Uh, they're two separate things that they do reinforce each other now, but with that, so learning this stuff and learning about aging a tree and learning about duck ponds and deep roots and water tables and all this kind of cool stuff that plays into reworking an environment and making it internally sustainable and the codependence of an ecosystem. And then seeing mm -hmm. that stuff play out at these preserves is so cool. Like, it's just yeah. so awesome. Before it was like, oh, these flowers are gorgeous. Right. And now it's, oh man, dude, this is massive. What's going on here and the science playing out is just so cool. But with that's a, a before, <laughs> if we even want to still get into biochar briefly, but with that, I think another key important thing is with trees being such an important means of carbon sequestration, it's important that we do that dance as efficiently as possible when it comes to preserves in nature. And so a really important thing that I heard mentioned was that because in developed countries, we have allocated so much land to habitation, to industry, to recreation, what we have left is what we call nature. And so that is our attachment to nature, right? Mm. We are emotionally attached to this thing that we see as the natural world, when in reality, it's just the only thing we have left. The natural world tends to become a resource. And so there's forestry companies that chop down trees and they know what they're doing. And it's I've, I've, apparently I've heard accounts, right, where the public is like, hey, you burned down all these trees. You did a control burn, which is actually a really good thing right. for the longevity of a forest. But it looks ugly and the public doesn't understand. And so public members of the community have gone out of their way to then try to get bills passed and succeeded to thwart the efforts of forestry companies, hmm. which in turn actually negates the functionality of a forest, right? So if you're like, how dare you cut down that old growth, the growth hmm. that is stagnated and is no longer sequestering carbon and is functionally uh, a great See. economic worth, it just has great economic worth for the people managing that land, the people that care, the people that are managing that forest and making it most efficient and the people that care about sustainability because that's what's gonna keep them in business that old growth is is done. And they're just not chopping down all these old trees, but there are trees that stagnate when they re reach a certain point in maturity. And then once that's gone, guess what? They plant a bunch of new trees and those trees are thriving. They're thriving to race each other to a new height and they are sequestering carbon like crazy. Hmm. And they're doing a better job versus that tree that totally stagnated. Right. And then when you take out old trees, you're preventing forest fires that just re-release and actually undercut their profitability. <laughs> and so... I think the public could do a better job about understanding the practices that function, right? Like I, before I started going to preserves and learning all this stuff a few years ago, I was like walking around one preserve where they did an acre wide controlled burn. And I was like, this is hideous. What are they doing? Did someone drop a cigarette? And I had no idea. Uh, and now I'm like, oh, this is the reason there's a season that's so beautiful every year is because they do this every once in a while. They sit there and they understand how the land works, how returning stuff to the soil works, how mm. having light access to other things works and also offering some accessibility. And controlled burning has been something that's been around for centuries with indigenous peoples, using it to keep land thriving and also to coerce the livestock, just the wild animals that they want to hunt into certain places. Oh, and then while they're doing that, those animals are feeding on the flat land and they're 
pooping and peeing all over it uh, and they're offering so much more to the soil mm-hmm. and it's been a very functional thing and then our little european ancestor showed up and said look at these savages and their ignorance and we're like oh they're just burning willy-nilly and they decided to put a stop to that with their force and it turns out years later we're learning that the indigenous peoples had a great practice going on that we have impeded to a, a terrible cost and but yeah i think the public opinion should inform itself before it tries to introduce policies that negate the functionality of a forest so biochar <laughs> is, is this really cool thing i think it's i think biochar is derived from the uh, like oils and stuff of trees i don't think it's actually the functional well it's a variety of things i think you can do it with hemp trees whatever but you heat the heck out of something uh for an elongated period of time in a vacuum chamber and what's left over is this like charcoal matter and so that charcoal is essentially what i guess guess its main purpose for biochar is to the guy whose podcast i listened to on this essentially it's supposed to serve what he gave as a metaphor is a motel for the ground so if you have soil that needs a little push uh biochar sits there as a means for the things that you want to enter that soil to thrive. So if they didn't have this biochar, they might have a little bit of a harder fight to introduce such a good micro ecology. But in reality, when you introduce this stuff, it helps them move in and stabilize and perpetuate itself a little bit better. And so I think that's the main function. But some other cool stuff that comes with it is I think if you burn a little further or maybe even just as is, as the commercial product comes out, it can be activated similarly like how humans eat activated carbon at 90% carbon and it helps your digestive health. When you feed this stuff to livestock at, I think it's 60 or 70% carbon, when you feed it to livestock, it has that similar kind of like microbiome filtration effect in the gut. And so you actually see, I don't think it's, it's as widespread, but there have been notices that it cuts down on the methane that cows fart out when you feed it to a bunch of cows and your livestock, I think in general, that's great. Methane is worse than carbon dioxide in terms of heating our atmosphere. And with that, it becomes like a really cool thing. Uh, You can also use it too as like a a charcoal substitute. And that goes back again to that net carbon. Do you use, do you burn charcoal that you found in the ground that would have never found its way into the atmosphere? Or do you burn charcoal that's been produced from a tree? that was already going to re-release somehow. And I think biochar is just like a really cool product and I endorse it. The the Wikipedia page for this is fascinating. It even has the stock feed. It says, Western Australian farmer explored the biochar mixed with molasses as a stock feed. And he asserts that the ruminants biochar can assist digestion and reduce methane production, which is just honestly, super fascinating product here or just... uh, Material. And there's so much. I'm, I'm so blown away right now because there's so much we've covered that I was blissfully unaware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so cool. <laughs> there's so much going on here that it's especially too. It's like biochar literally looks like charcoal. Uh, and I'll make sure to have a photo of it in the show notes for people because uh, this is also fascinating that if someone were to show you it, you would just think is charcoal Mm. at the end of the day like it doesn't look like anything different and we're just we're slightly over an hour already nick and so i think right now would be a great point i think we've given enough for people to chew on and think Mm. about and explore further and make sure you send me the podcasts that you've uh, cited here so that i can include them in the show notes as well can I just like send you the link? Yeah, yeah. You don't need you don't need to say it now. Yeah. No, just in general, like I've I think I've listened to upwards of thirty of them. Yeah, whatever ones that are like important, like the ones that stick out to you the most. 
Like, okay, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So just make sure you send me those links so I can get those. And then if there's anything else that you want to just say to anyone or possibly explore this thing, because I think some of the stuff we said though, is this is complex, right? There's so many mm -hmm. layers and facets right. to explore. And so if there's anything right. to. Yeah. I think like, again, back to the why ethical part, this is a global issue. And to me, it's a little bit sketchy that there's still this idea floating around amongst, especially the conservative political side that any entertainment of climate change is a democratic hoax. Like the idea that this global issue is an American democratic hoax is laughable to me. And I don't mean to say that there's not bad actors that might in policy try to perverse that and try to get more out of it than just functional change for everybody. Like the whole political BS saying like never waste a good crisis. I don't doubt that there's actors out there, right? Mm -hmm. But that feels to me like you have an issue with your engine and you go to nine mechanics and all of them tell you, oh yeah, your piston punctured the actual engine. How did you even drive it here? And then one of them is, hey, by the way, you need an oil change. And you're like, I just got an oil change. I know I don't need that. And so you're like, because one of these mechanics tried to oversell me, it's clearly fake and my car is fine. Meanwhile, there's a hole in your engine because a piston punctured it and you had eight, you had nine people telling you that it's there. And so, again, the idea that this is somehow an American democratic hoax as a whole is nutty to me. And actually, someone recently sent me a, a book with this guy who's trying to, who has counter arguments as a professional and I believe renowned uh, meteorologist. And he, he does make some good arguments from what I could see. I looked, I didn't order his book yet. I think his name is Joe Bastardi. And, but I, I listened to a few of his interviews. What's it? Oh, what is it? It's a picture of him with a squirt gun. And it's like myths against the weather hoax or the war on weather or something like that. Um, and he's like making fun of the people that supposedly uh, are, are touting the, or are overestimating the consequences of this. But then when you <laughs> listen to his talks, Again, this is the same thing that people do wrong with articles. They read the title and they're like, oh my God, and they go test their friend. All I know is the title of his book. And listening to his talks, though, he, he gets into carbon sequestration practices. So he understands the consequences. But I think his big thing is he doesn't want to infringe upon oil industry, which is tough for me. Hmm. And circling back to why I think a non-deity-based metric is important, because this manifest destiny approach to access to resources is getting out of hand. Like watching politicians sit there and say, like, how dare we think that we could have an impact on God's earth when we have statistics showing our insane impact on God's earth. And on top of that, again, this Reagan era manifest destiny, like under Nixon, this like environmentalism is supposedly a progressive thing. But under our conservative Nixon president, you had a unanimous nation saying, yeah, we have to do something about preserving our environment. And then Reagan's right-hand man came in and said, no, no, God has willed it that we should go in and get what we need out of the land. It is our manifest destiny, and we should do this. And just to see people manipulating religion like that is nuts to me, which is why I wanted to dive headfirst into this non-deity-based metric that got me here to the idea that we are the byproduct of the environment that we are now negating. And so... What I mean to end on now is that there's a lot going on, and this is a global issue. 60 years is not far away, and we might be damning ourselves. We might be at the point of no return right now, and that's terrifying. And in the field of psychology, it's not uncommon to notice 
that when people are in the face of these things without evidence, without wanting to seek evidence, now in a day and age of incredible bias and seeking out our own biases and echo chambers, we tend to shut down emotionally, right? And this is an enormous issue with intense consequences. And one little tidbit that I feel illustrates this is from that Mark Manson book we were talking about earlier, right? I think it's called uh, Everything is Fucked. So, Woo! Um, Colorful titles. He opens the book up with this guy, uh, a Polish militia member, who before the Holocaust went into full swing, Poland was being fought over between the Soviets and the Nazis. And the Nazis eventually had set up this little camp called Auschwitz. And before they started introducing the Jewish people that they had kidnapped, it was just the Polish citizens that they were throwing in Auschwitz at the time. And so he gets this idea to break into Auschwitz to form his own little internal militia and then break everybody out. And once he gets there, he does like a great job of forming an internal militia. He sets up his own ham radio and hides it from the Nazis. It's an incredible story. What happens with his ham radio is he starts reporting out to his fellow militiamen outside of Auschwitz. And all of a sudden, around this time, I believe the kidnapped Jewish people start to show up. And he starts to notify his external militia members about the gas chambers and the mass murder and everything. And you know what his Polish, his fellow militia people who are supposed to help break in and, and release all these people, they say he must be overestimating. He must be dramatizing. This can't be true. And then they decided to forward that on to the allies. And the allies said, this is probably overinflated and he's being dramatic. And then that made its way to America. And they said, <laughs> this is probably being overestimated and he's being dramatic. And now here we are decades later and it was not overestimated and it was not dramatic, but that's people's reaction in the face of such high gravity stuff. And it's not crazy to want to look at the commentary of convenience in the face of something so drastic. And it's not, it's easy to stagnate and it's huge and it's not even necessarily our cost without knowing the full cost of the products that we buy and endorsing in the industries we have and the history that has gotten us to where we are right now to even have these conversations. We have also created this scenario, but we have to deal with it or see some pretty intense consequences. And again, it's there and it's not going away. And we can either choose to stagnate or brush it off or choose the convenient reality and say, just like America and the allies and the Polish militia, this is being over-dramatized and it's not that big and it can't be the way it is. It just might be. And statistics show that it is and we got to do something. So yeah, that's my two cents as a non-expert who doesn't know much. Mm -hmm. the, the thing I'd like to end on here is a quote. So you explained the story with Auschwitz as the example there is humans have a tendency to when something gets too large, we cannot comprehend it. And mm -hmm. so the quote here is from Heather Hying, and she says, the visceral anecdote will always be more powerful than the dispassionate statistic. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. That's the whole thing this Mark Manson book is about, is that statistics and the thinking brain cannot outweigh the emotional brain, because the emotional side of our brain is what holds our values. And so we need to empathize with ourselves to align our actions with those values. Uh -huh. And the way we procure information with those values is with that thinking brain. So take those statistics, digest them emotionally, and then coax yourself into actionable behavior. You've nailed it. Nick, as always, you think widely and deeply and share what you've learned in a great way. Thanks, man.
I'm glad to be on. I'm glad. I hope if anybody listening has stuff to completely counterbalance or add, I would love to hear all of it because <laughs> I am very invested in this pursuit. Yeah. Awesome. And I'm sure we'll have on again and talk further about what you've been exploring or as you refine your uh, data set. <laughs> yeah, heck yeah. Cool. All right. I wanted to take some time here and talk about how you, the listeners, can support Feeding Curiosity. I've always believed in providing more content to whoever listens to this of value than what you'd ever pay for. I don't like the idea of having to sponsor myself with products I don't use or believe in. If it's something I use and believe in, then sure, I will talk about it and I will do everything I can to do that. And I've done that on this podcast before. Not sponsored, but I've talked about many products that I believe in. But in the aims of choosing to create a new model that I believe in and that we should all be striving for is breaking ourselves away from the subsidized model that ads provide. And so with that, we have turned on the uh, anchor.fm support structure which allows you, the listener, to subscribe to our content at the level of your choosing. That is either a $0.99, cents, $4.99, or $9.99 a month. Meaning that you, the listener, and me, the creator, can be transparent about how much value you see in our content. And by doing so, that allows me to have more resources to ever increase the quality of this content. And that's not to say I won't be doing this anyways, but it breaks me out of the loop of having to worry about those things because there is a lot of time that goes into this podcast, but I love it. And I hope that by you choosing to support the podcast, you know how much I care about the quality of this content. And so with that, everyone, thank you all for listening and I hope you enjoy.